0: And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It's 3 p.m., and up next is cover to cover, open book.
1: Hi, I'm Brian DeShazer, Director of the Pacifica Radio Archives, the oldest and largest collection of public radio programming in the United States. And welcome to From the Vault, our weekly series that takes that history out of the vault and back on the radio. In this edition of From the Vault, we present our earliest known recording of Japanese Americans and their families living in California, talking about life in America. The year was 1959, and KPFA in Berkeley, California, opened its doors and its microphones to welcome the Japanese Americans to tell their stories.
2: I stayed in the first grade about uh, two or three days. Well, at the end of about one month, they put me up to, I think it was fifth grade. When I was about 18, my father uh, went back to Japan. From there on, I couldn't go to school, so I had to quit school and work myself.
1: The Japanese began to immigrate to America by large numbers in the late 1880s through the earliest 20th century. By 1942, there were 127,000 Japanese Americans living in the continental United States, and of those, 112,000 were living on the West Coast. This is the classic example of the American dream, an immigrant group working hard, raising their families, and making an effort to assimilate and make contributions to their new home country. That all changed following the imperial Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which brought the United States into World War II full throttle. Soon after that event, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 on February 19, 1942, authorizing the internment of all the 112,000 Japanese living on the West Coast. This extraordinary act of wartime hysteria and racism would only be officially acknowledged when President Ronald Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which provided $20,000 to surviving detainees and their heirs, totaling $1.6 billion. But now we turn to our extraordinary recording of Japanese Americans and their families from 1959, talking about family life before the war and how the internment process changed their lives forever. This program was produced by Marshall Windmiller from Pacifica Station KPFA 94.1 in Berkeley, California. You will hear from ordinary citizens, teachers, students, students, lawyers, architects, and farmers, but you'll also hear from Hito Akado, one of the founders and past presidents of the oldest and largest Asian civil rights group. It was called Japanese America Citizens League and it was founded in 1929. We're proud to present Marshall Windmiller's program Japanese in California from 1959.
3: Pacifica Foundation presents the Japanese in California, one of a series of programs dealing with racial minorities Produced by KPFA Berkeley, under a grant from the Columbia Foundation. There are only about 160,000 Japanese in the United States, and most of them live on the West Coast. They refer to themselves as the Issei, Nisei, and Sansei. That is the first, second, and third generations. The Issei began coming to America in the 1890s, but their numbers were greatly limited by legislation designed to keep out Orientals. Only their children, born in this country, are citizens. The program you are about to hear makes no attempt to exhaust the subject or to recite all the facts of history. It is rather a verbal montage of the characteristics of a group and an attempt to convey something of the feeling of what it is like to be a Japanese in California.
2: America, heard uh, quite a bit from my father, and uh, I sure wanted to come over here and see what kind of a country it is.
3: Led by that dream, this say came, as we or our ancestors all came to America to face the day-to-day facts of existence on foreign soil. Each of the many voices you will hear speaks not only for an individual, but for countless others like him, sharers of the dream, participants in the events. Who can say how much the dream helped to create the reality?
2: Well, when I first came, there wasn't uh, very many Japanese boys to go to school. And, uh, most of the people were old men, no women folks, you know. And, uh, well, everywhere you go, uh, you didn't see, uh, you just see a man, a Japanese. Uh, no families or, uh, no, no of their own house to live in. So the first thing, uh, when I came over here, I had to stay with, uh, friends. A couple of years after I came over here, uh, women started to come in. I stayed in the first grade about, uh, two or three days. So the second grade, third grade, uh, well, at the end of about one month, they put me up to, I think it was fifth grade. Well, I stayed in, uh, in the American family, I stayed in as a schoolboy, and, uh, of course, I studied, uh, pretty hard there, and I was, of course, I was old, too old to be uh, with a, With for a first, second or third grade, you see. I think that was the reason that uh, they put me up in uh, upper grade. My father was working and anyway uh, I could I had to work and help him too. Uh, so I had to go in as a house boy. Uh, when I was about uh Eighteen my father uh, went back to Japan and uh, from there on i couldn't uh, I couldn't go to school, so I had to quit school and work myself Later in Stockton there
4: was a uh, hub in the downtown area which uh Would be comparable to the uh, what they call Japanese Town in San Francisco, and uh, my father uh, was—he built the—I think he was the first uh, Japanese uh, well immigrant to build the build his own home in Stockton, and in so doing, we moved uh, well more or less to the outskirts of town. It was still what you would consider the wrong side of the tracks, but it was. Uh, an area in which he was able to, uh, uh, well, obtain a lot and build a home. The neighborhood was, uh, well, as I recall now, it was predominantly an Italian uh, neighborhood, and uh, they didn't seem to mind. Then uh, many Japanese families moved into the area, and uh, I grew up in a neighborhood that was uh, old. Within a uh, four or five block radius, I imagine there must have been uh, 20 Japanese families. And the rest of the families were probably of the Italian uh, origin.
0: You know, it's just something that you know that you're different and that you're somehow not part of the community. And uh, I guess you feel it more in a, you know, in a rural community. My brothers, however, can distinctly remember being stoned and this kind of thing when they were growing up. But uh, it was less open. Um, it led two different lives, I recall. Uh, you went to school with them and you engaged in all kinds of activity with them in the school. But once you were out of school, then the line was clearly drawn. You never saw each other socially. Uh, it was just very, very clear you you left it at school all this idea of democracy is just forgotten the minute you leave the school
5: well i think in those days i didn't uh, mind it too much uh, all the minorities uh, the negroes mexicans chinese and japanese were in in a somewhat a segregated, segregated part of town uh, the schools were not segregated however and uh, It it hadn't, uh, I hadn't given great thought to uh, the human relations in those days, but uh, thinking back on it, I did realize that although I had Caucasian friends, uh, we never invited them to our home, nor was I invited to theirs. I lived on a farm, truck farm, dirt farm, and uh, I grew up during the depression I was a kid during the depression a young kid and the well my friends it was was sort of an intermixed community and there was Mexicans and we didn't play with too much it was a rural community neighborhoods were far. Their closest neighbor was another Japanese family about oh maybe three quarters of a mile away. And whenever we did play with anyone we played with them which was maybe once a month. There was Japanese families say within a radius of three four miles who sort of had a community of their own. And they were Quite a few of them, let's say about half the old men, were uh, quite nationalistic, and they tried to carry on Japanese traditions and ceremonies and so on, they had a Japanese school.
6: class is, uh, we call uh, Buddhist-Japanese class. We start with uh, uh, a short ceremony, with Gassho. Gassho gas is uh, and just um, a salutation to the uh, Buddha, and also end with Gassho. And the uh, main purpose of this class is uh, uh, to give them um, uh, some uh, uh, religious um, knowledge through a language acquaintance, because uh, many uh, uh, terminologies in uh, Buddhism are mostly untranslatable. It's hard to translate. Uh, We we uh, can't find a a very adequate or suitable word in English on uh, sometimes uh, using uh, original Japanese or original Sanskrit Chinese was more convenient. So in that point we need uh, we feel the necessity of giving the small children the knowledge of Japanese. So our purpose is to give the religious education as well as uh, uh, language knowledge, so we called this uh, Buddhist Japanese class.
0: I do feel that that
2: uh, language is something that uh, we should maintain in some form or another. At least uh, in terms of talking, maybe not so much reading, but at least talking, which I'm not very good at, and uh, I could get by, but I mean I certainly. learn a lot more than I already know. With the older generation, you can get by by speaking half Japanese and half English.
7: I have many friends who speak Japanese only. I have a friend who is, uh, was educated in Japan. I have a friend uh, that came from Japan after the war. And I have a
1: a friend uh, who is so-called... all oh, brides. Right. You are listening to Japanese in California, a 1959 documentary produced for KPFA by Marshall Winmuller in 1959. If you'd like more information about this documentary or to get the complete recording, give us a call at 1-800-735-0230 or you can visit us online at fromthevaultradio.org. This program was discovered as part of a grant project we did with the American Archive funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting highlighting civil rights recordings. As we looked at the Civil Rights that were addressed by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and we saw a lot of areas that were missed. And in, in addition to the African American civil rights, Latino Chicana civil rights, women's rights, LGBT rights, Japanese American rights, we also were able to influence and contribute to the idea of disability rights, mental patients' rights, and other rights that have been. And now back to the incredible testimonials from 1959.
3: many minority groups in America, and most of them have formed associations to protect their rights. The organization of the Japanese is the JACL, the Japanese American Citizens League. I was one of the uh,
8: founders of the JACL in San Francisco, way back, and uh, even then it was very hard to get started in those days because... uh, uh, these were quite pro-Japanese at that time, and they didn't like the idea of us uh, organizing citizens group. And in fact, uh, one of the first uh, group was organized in in Fresno, and they were they called themselves the American Loyalty League. And then Seattle had a group called the Progressive Citizens League, and we were the first ones to to. Uh, to uh, uh, form under the Japanese American Citizens League. Uh, we've organized that in San Francisco. Saburo Kido, who was a big, uh, big man in JCL, and some of us got together and organized JCL, I served as president two or three times. And uh, we really had a very lowly start. Well, they used to say they couldn't join anyhow, but uh, a lot of them uh, uh, tried to prevent their sons and daughters from coming in at that time. Well, a lot of them were bitter because they, they weren't able to get citizenship, and uh, there was a lot of prejudice. So they felt that uh, as long as we're treated as uh, orphans, why should we be be uh, loyal to this country? But that has changed an awful lot since. This was way back in 2029 20, or 30, around there. We had a very difficult time getting that thing started. I remember Kito and I just alternated presidency there for five or six years before we take over.
0: All of my children speak English because it's hard for me to teach right now. Uh, if I talk to do Japanese in, to them, it's all right. But I try to speak English, and if I speak Japanese between them, just. I don't think too good. I try to speak English now. And then since um, they speak English outside anyway, but um, I like them to learn Japanese. So my oldest boy is going to be six, so I, once in a while I try to teach them, uh, him. He's interesting too, and uh, uh, he copies what I say.
6: Uh. I don't know. This is a bad or good. The Japanese is number one people for forget about uh, Japanese language. So uh, you see, especially compared with the Chinese or um, other uh, Spanish-speaking people, uh, they uh, most other people, even uh, second or third generation. speak very fluent uh, mother language uh, but uh, this Japanese generation uh, already second generation uh, their knowledge of uh, Japanese are very poor so very fast to uh, forget that means uh, in one point very bad but in another point they, uh, uh, the assimilation The very good, I think. In
3: nineteen forty one, there were one hundred and twelve thousand Japanese on the Pacific coast. Two thirds of them were American citizens. By the end of 1942, they had all been forced to leave their jobs, give up their homes and businesses, and be interned behind barbed wire. They had not been charged with any crime, they had merely had Japanese ancestors. And on December 7, 1941, the Imperial Japanese Navy had attacked Pearl Harbor, and the United States had gone to war with Japan.
8: Golf that morning and when I came home at noontime I heard about that I didn't dream that we would be evacuated. I thought that as American citizens that we would be protected in this way. We thought maybe the alien Japanese would be evacuated but not the citizens. And we thought it was quite discriminatory because the Italians and the Germans were enemies too and uh, the East Coast was just as vulnerable. There were submarines lurking in that area, but they never moved any of them because they were as strong. Uh, and they settled in that, that area. They had influence, influence and influential people, backing them. And then we uh, were here for some time, but then we were evacuated to, uh, to and the, uh, the stables of Tanfran there. Stayed there for some time. We shipped to uh, Topaz, uh, Utah. So well, I stayed for a while, but I was one of the first to leave Then go to Chicago, where we were more or less in free territory, to live our own lives. Well, I don't
7: like it because, uh, why Japanese alone? How about the Chinese, uh, uh, German and Italian? They uh, was in the same situation. But because we are, you know, so-called uh, Orientals, and flat nose and funny eyes, we were kicked out of the state. Not because Japan was close to the Pacific coast, I don't believe. The German or Italian or or any other group could have done the same damage if they wanted to for the national security. But they weren't kicked out. I went to a... One of those, you know, uh, assembly centers. I didn't like it, of course. Uh, The first chance I had had was to go to Idaho to work in a farm. I grabbed that chance and went to Idaho, work in a farm. Uh, Most during the summertime and autumn, and then the wintertime, they didn't have too much work. So uh, I. uh, went into uh, one of those, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, camp. Uh, from there, I... Uh, uh, volunteered for the army. Uh, for the, of course, uh, at the uh, army language school to become an uh, interpreter, uh, you know. Or some uh, language, you know. Language, you uh, thing. Then, uh went overseas, stationed in Guam, and uh, for a little while I was uh, working on one of those station radio stations, listening to the, uh, you know, Japanese uh, radios, and, and then uh, Japanese army uh, and the navy uh, uh, radios and those things. Another chance came, when uh, so I be, I was able to volunteer for the a uh, flight uh, over or around the Japanese islands. I volunteer for that, I guess I flew across the hundred hours flight time, and then uh One day I got uh, wounded in Iwo Jima. So after that, I was in the hospital. And then they sent me back to the hospital over here in the state. I got discharged. And soon after I got discharged, I got the job I got now
0: thing that's the thing that I I felt about it and I I was working my way through school and I was staying at the dean's place and um, we had an idea that we were going to be moved and the dean would not believe me when I would say we were leaving that I thought we would have to be moved or something and I remember the time that um, well it was toward the end of the semester and the army posted these things on the the thing and that was the first time I found out about it and I remember running into the dean's office and saying I have to make arrangements to leave and the dean would not believe it until we dragged him out and showed it to him and then he realized this was this was it and then there was no time really to think about it because we just had to leave very quickly and you couldn't in this small community show any sympathy and you would be ostracized and there was one there was one white boy that went to school with us he studied Japanese with us and um, the poor fellow had to leave because he felt sympathetic toward, uh, toward us it's kind of an interesting thing he's not living anymore unfortunately I can remember feeling like I was in a dream world that all of this wasn't true I felt like I was in a daze for months. it seemed like. And, uh... In a way, we weren't prepared for it, because my folks were prepared for it. They said they would be moved, but they didn't dream for one minute that we would be moved. The children would be moved. And, uh... I guess what you call repressing it, because I just... All I remember was it's kind of a nightmare, and that's kind of a feeling that I had.
1: We were rather naive. We didn't, we knew we were American citizens, but nobody else knew that, and we weren't, you know, we didn't realize that. And so what happened was that uh, when, the, uh, when the war came, Uh, that's exactly the situation in which we found ourselves that certain people who had worked among us church people and uh, other people whom we had befriended in the course of our growing up and our parents had uh, knew us but it was still a rather small minority of people who really knew us and understood us but as far as the general public is concerned they they had no idea that uh, We were Americans, our loyalty was to this country, and least of all our own government. And that does it for this week's From the Vault. We'd like to say a special thank you to Addie Gevins for helping us with this series being preserved and represented to the Pacifica Network listeners. We are now streaming and podcasting online at fromthevaultradio.org. Thanks to all the Pacifica Station listeners who joined our summer school campus campaign and sponsored more schools with the From the Vault series. For more information, call the archives at one 800 735 or visit us online at PacificaRadioArchives.org. From the Vault is presented as part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project, which is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts and past grants from the Grammy Foundation and the American Archive Pilot Project funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This program was written and produced by Mark Torres and Brian DeShazer. The series is executive produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives and your host, Brian De Shazer our theme music is by Kevin drum holiday thanks for listening Hello, I'm Michael Robert Patch, Artistic Director and Conductor of the Oakland East Bay Gay Men's Chorus. I would like to personally invite you to join us for our annual Summer Pops Concert and Fundraiser, Bohemian Nights, on Saturday, August 6th at 7 p.m. Located at the beautiful Oakland Asian Cultural Center, you'll hear music by Queen, Abba, Elton John, Gilbert and Sullivan, and selections from the hit Broadway musical, Jekyll and Hyde. Enjoy the fine food and wine and bid on many wonderful auction items on display. For more information, visit us at www.oebgmc.org or call us at 1-800-706-2389.